Father, I ask for your blessing on this time in your word. I ask that this study would be used by you, by the Holy Spirit, speaking through me, speaking into the hearts of those who hear, to deliver a truth that's uniquely yours. Only from you can the truth come. Only from you, Father, can we have a revelation of things eternal. Make that known to us today. Set aside error and and oversight and anything that I may say, Father, that is inconsistent with your truth. And in place of those things, teach us directly from your word, through your spirit. Leave us, Father, with a greater sense of who you are and how we may serve you and please you as we await your son's return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 38, we're going to pick up in verse 12 or so where we left off last week. Joseph, at this stage of the story in in Genesis, has been sent away. We know he's off in Egypt. Meanwhile, his brothers and his father have just gone on with their lives in Canaan. And it's going to be 22 years before Jacob eventually will lead his family into Egypt to join Joseph. And in all of those 22 years, we have only one chapter in Scripture telling us about the life of Jacob's household in that time, and that's chapter 38. The focus of the chapter is Judah, the son who carries the seed promise from the inheritance God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by seed promise, we mean he is the son, he is the one who will carry forth the the promised seed of the Messiah. From Judah's line will come eventually the Messiah. Now, Judah is no saint. We've seen that already in the story. Like his brothers, he was willing to kill Joseph at one point. Ultimately, he was the one who suggested selling him into slavery. And as far as chapter 38 has gone so far, we've seen him go a step further. He's run from home, he's left, and now he's living in a Canaanite community, and he's taken a wife, a Canaanite wife. This is a woman who's never named, and as we're going to soon see today, she dies. Judah's choice was a serious departure from what has happened before. Neither his great-grandfather or his grandfather or his father had chosen anyone other than members of the traditional family for mates. And instead, Judah has hitched his wagon to a people group, to Canaanites, who God himself proclaimed are cursed. And as God proclaimed, that means any member of a Canaanite family must one day cease to exist, as every curse requires. Now, in the course of the first part of this chapter, we learned that Judah has so far had three sons through this Canaanite wife, men called Ur, Onan, and Shelah. As Ur reached his teens, Judah found a wife for Ur, a woman named Tamar, and Ur's character reflects the Canaanite curse. He's said to be so evil and he displeases God to such a great degree that God kills him. Likewise, his brother Onan takes Tamar as his wife, which was in keeping with the Leverite marriage law of the time, the brother-in-law marriage, which required that when a son dies, that the next unmarried brother should take that wife as his and raise up an heir. But Onan is willing to take Tamar, but unwilling to give Tamar a child, because if she had had that child, it would have belonged to her and it would have threatened Onan's ability to have the entire birthright for himself. So God took Onan's life also. Judah is to be the tribal line with the seed promise. They're going to have the privilege as a tribe of raising up kings in the nation of Israel, not the least of which is the king, the king of Israel, the king of the world, the Messiah. 
But it's clear that if the Lord is going to bring the Messiah through the line of Judah, something's going to have to intervene to change the direction of this family. Already, the Lord's put two of the sons to death, thus preventing the line of the Messiah from coming through Canaanites. But there's still the matter of Judah. Now, without a wife, and then there's the issue of Tamar. You have a widow now who is living in Judah's house, waiting to marry the final son, Shelah, which the law requires. But Judah has so far refused to allow that because he's afraid that because of what's transpired so far, if she were to marry the third son, that third son would die as well. So at the point we are now in this story, no one's getting married. No one's having babies. This is not going well for the seed line. But as we've seen so many times already in the story of Genesis, the Lord is steadily moving a storyline forward in the direction that he desires using the sin of this family as his muse for that story. The brothers, as you remember, sent Joseph into slavery, thinking they were doing themselves some good. But we know it was the Lord's hand, clearly and evidently, moving those circumstances in that way for good purposes. And now in this story, you have Judah's repeated sins, leaving his family on the brink of ruin and even extinction. But nonetheless, God is ready to intervene to protect the seed promise And to make sure that his purposes are met in the family. Look at verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So... She removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gate of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Well, the story gets intriguing at this point. You have now Judah's unnamed wife dying. One thing I keep mentioning about this woman is she is unnamed. And the reason I mention that is because though women aren't always named in the stories of Scripture, it is important in this case to note she is unnamed. A woman of a patriarch under the circumstances might have expected to be named. The fact that she is not named is dismissive of her intentionally, illustrating that she was not an appropriate wife, that she was not a woman who had any future in the family of Israel as a Canaanite. She has died now, so that results in a period of mourning for Judah, which is the traditional outcome. You've seen this already with Abraham and others in stories past. When the wife or the spouse dies, there's a period of mourning. But that period of mourning will eventually come to an end. And when it does, normal life returns. And in this case, normal means it's time to shear the sheep. It's the time of year when a shepherd would take his sheep and have the the outer coat removed. The shearing location in this case is located about 12 miles from Judah's home in Adula, in the Shephelah. So they have to travel 12 miles to get to the place of shearing. So he goes with a friend, we're told. Now, the time of shearing, traditionally, was a time of great revelry. It was a time of celebration. The days were long. They were filled with a lot of hard work for the men, shearing the sheep and so on. By the time the day would end and you get to the evening part of the day, then the fun happened. The men would all gather around. There'd be a feast. There'd be a time to cut loose, whatever you want to say. And enjoy each other. And it was aided by the fact that this was a male-only event. The women didn't travel for this. Only the guys got together. And when guys get together, boys will be boys, as they say. 
So Tamar learns that Judah is going to Timnah for the shearing. And that told her three things in this case. First, it indicates that this period of mourning was over. If he had still been in mourning, he wouldn't have engaged in this kind of activity. Secondly, it told her that Judah was about to be found in a place and in a state of mind in which he would have been willing to enjoy himself, to celebrate. And then finally, it told her that Shelah, Judah's third son, was never going to be her husband. You have to understand, when Judah sets out from the family home for this event, he's going to be gone for a while. And he's not taking Shelah with him. He's taking a friend instead. Which tells us that Shelah was now considered old enough by his father to watch over the affairs of the estate in his absence. Well, if he is old enough to watch over the affairs of his estate, then he is also old enough to marry. And clearly the marriage is not being planned, much less happening. And so she puts two and two together and she concludes that it is not merely the case that Shelah is too young to marry me. No, it is evident that Judah will not let him marry me. So Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands. The thing a woman feared the most in that culture and in that time was to be made a widow without having a son to care for her in her old age. That's the circumstances that Tamar is facing. A widow without a son. And according to the Leverite marriage law of the time, Tamar is betrothed to Shelah. Remember, in that culture, there was a two-stage process to marriage. There would be the betrothal, a point at which two people are linked to each other in marriage, and at that stage cannot marry anyone else. But until that marriage actually is formally sanctified, until it is consummated, they are waiting for that moment. They are stuck in limbo. Well, under the law of the day, she became betrothed to Shelah the moment that Onan died, according to the Leverite law. But because Judah has not acted to bring that marriage about, she is trapped in limbo. No other man can have her, and she can't force Judah's hand. But a woman always has one tool at her disposal that she can use to even the odds, especially in a patriarchal culture. She can use her body, and she can use it to take what she cannot obtain legitimately. And that's what Tamar does. We're told she removes her widow's garments and she puts on a very unique outfit. First, we're told she puts on a veil. Now, the mention of a veil here is a very specific reference to a wedding veil. She is basically dressing up as a bride on her wedding night. And in the day that this occurred, prostitution was a legal activity. It wasn't illegal. It was actually allowed. And the uniform of a prostitute was of a bride on her wedding night. And you can imagine all sorts of reasons for why that was the chosen outfit. When Tamar then appears in public in this outfit, she is advertising herself publicly as a prostitute. That's the whole point. But it had the added benefit in this case of concealing her identity, which is going to help in the plan that she has. Furthermore, we're told she wraps herself, which doesn't give us a lot of Detail, but the term, the word in Hebrew, it refers to a particular article of clothing or a style of clothing that was common among temple prostitutes. Temples, pagan temples, often had prostitution as a part of their worship process. And there were prostitutes who served in these temples for the sake of the needs of the worshipers. 
And temple prostitutes were a station of prostitute above the common and ordinary prostitute. And they had a uniform of their own, which distinguished them from the ordinary. She is dressing as one of those cultic prostitutes, this higher order, more sophisticated, higher class, if you will, prostitute. And then lastly, we're told she stations herself in the gate of the city of Enaim to wait for Judah. Now, that city sits directly on the road that connects Adullam, which is where Judah lives, with Timnah, the place we heard they're going for the shearing. It's likely that she expects to catch him on his return. So while he's gone ahead, she goes up to this city, waits in the gate to see him come back. The road would have passed directly in front of the gate of the city, and the gate of the city would have been a place of commerce, a place of meeting, of business, It's not merely just a hole in the wall. It's a whole chambered area in which business could take place. Hanging out in that place was the best possible location to catch Judah's eye as he goes down the road. That's where we go now. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? Sure enough, Judah sees Tamar. Now, we could play out the odds here of what's the likelihood he would have noticed or wanted her when he noticed and offered her something on that moment. But as you'll see with the story playing out, God's hand is evident in these circumstances. Here again, sin at work, but God using sin because that's all he has with us. With people, he's working through the sin of these hearts. Judah sees Tamar. He assumes she's a prostitute from the temple because she's dressed that way. And she is covered. Her face is veiled, so he does not know her identity. He stops to secure her services. And then a negotiation process begins over price. Now, Tamar knows that Judah is not carrying anything of significant value on him. No man in that day would have. It would have put them at risk. So her intent here in the negotiation is not to actually arrive at a price that leaves her with anything of value. The point is to take advantage of the fact that he has nothing and use it as leverage so that she can gain something from him that will tie him to this moment, that will tie him to this act. Tamar is intent on becoming a wife, but more than that, she's intent on becoming a mother. She wants to be impregnated, to put it simply. She is enticing Judah in the hope of that outcome. That will force Judah's hand. That will require that Judah do the right thing by her if she turns up pregnant. Now, technically, this was allowed under the Leverite marriage laws of the day. The law said that if no brother was available to marry that widow, then another close male relative could serve the same purpose. And that would include, in some cases, a father-in-law performing that duty for that daughter-in-law widow. But in this case, a brother is available. Shelah is available, which means Judah cannot legally marry Tamar. It would be considered incest for him to do so. She's already betrothed to his son. But Judah has prevented that marriage. So Tamar is taking the next best available alternative for herself in this case, though it is sin in the way that she's doing it. So she's seeking something from Judah that she has every right to expect from him through his son, Shelah, but that she is not getting in a legitimate way. She's going after the right thing 
in the wrong way, which, by the way, makes her an ideal candidate to be part of Jacob's family. That's been his pattern from the very beginning. But if this plan works, if she gets pregnant, if she's back in Judah's house a few months from now and she turns up pregnant one day, she's going to be in a heap of trouble. And in fact, in this culture, she will be accused of adultery and she will be put to death. Ironically, in this culture, prostitution was legal, but adultery was punishable by death. So she needs something in her hand on that moment, on that future day, to tie Judah to this place and to this time. Otherwise, she'll have no defense. So watch the negotiation. Verse 17. He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, well, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who is by the road at Ianim? But they said, there's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there's been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So Judah offers to pay with a goat, which was probably pretty typical. That was real value in that day. But his goat isn't with him. He doesn't have a wallet with a goat in it. So his only option is to say, I'll pay you the goat when I get home to the flock. So basically, he wants Tamar's services on credit with a promise to pay later. Now, Tamar has counted on this. This is why I mentioned earlier, she knows he doesn't carry anything of significant value. She was counting on this exact arrangement. So she's prepared with a response. Tamar asked Judah for three things that serve as a pledge or as a, a way of securing his promise. These are things that are intensely personal, and yet they have very little value to anyone other than the owner. So they make a perfect opportunity for a pledge. She asks Judah for his seal. Now, seal here is a signet or a ring, literally. So she's asking for the ring that he would have used in that day and age to seal the wax on a document, which would have indicated this was his official signature on something. That's like asking for his driver's license today, you could say. Secondly, she asked for the cord. Now, the cord was the necklace that went around his neck upon which this ring was hanging. So although we call it a ring and you think of it like one you put on your finger, it was hung around the neck traditionally. So she's asking for the cord with the ring. So that's like asking for his wallet. And then finally, she asks for his staff. That's the unique tool of a shepherd. Shepherds have staffs as part of their work. It's like the keys to his work truck. So she's taken three things that by themselves don't add up to very much to anyone except the owner, but they're intensely personal. He wants those back. It's guaranteed to her that if she had been a real prostitute, he would have come back. He would have paid her. Now, Judah is willing to let these things go because he doesn't see any harm in it. She can't make any good use of them as far as he can tell. So he doesn't have any fear that she's going to run off with them. Well, run off. She did. Tamar takes the personal items, she flees, she goes all the way back to Judah's house, she puts her widow's garments back on, she just goes back to regular life. Meanwhile, Judah sends his friend 
back with the goat as payment. And as we read, there's no prostitute. There's no way to pay her. She's gone. He searches. They say, what temple prostitute? Of course, no one knows anything about it. And they decide to just stop the whole search because we just look like fools at this point. At this point, Tamar has the proof she needs to stay alive. Verse 24. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she's also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cord and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. So nature takes its course, and three months later, Tamar starts to show her pregnancy. And naturally, everyone assumes Tamar has been fooling around on the side and become pregnant in the process. And in that culture, this is punishable by death. So when Judah is told of her sin, he reacts in the right way, traditionally speaking, legally speaking. He says you have to be put to death. Now, as the patriarch living in a day and in a time in a patriarchal period of history, he had the authority to do this. I think it's important to understand that historically there was a day and an age at this point in history when there weren't nations, by and large. There weren't governments in the way we know them today. There were city states at best. But even then, a city state was just traditionally a clan that had grown large enough to put a wall around itself and call itself a city. And the patriarch of that clan was the ruler over the city. Apart from that, families were ruled by patriarchs. And the law of the land was that the patriarch was the judge, the president, the Congress, the everything over that family. So patriarchs were the law. And as Tamar is brought out to be burned, Judah is presented with the ring and the cord and the staff. And she says, hey, you wouldn't have to recognize these, would you? And of course, he does. His response in this moment is one of the most important moments in the story of this family and of the story of Jacob's family. He recognizes these things. Of course, how could he not? And I like to get inside his head for a moment to try to understand fully the words he speaks here. I imagine him staring at these items and I imagine a flood of memory and of emotion kind of running through his mind in a flash. While he's caught up in this moment of righteous indignation against his daughter-in-law, how dare she go off and, and fool around on this family? How dare she defile our family name? And he's right at the verge here of putting her to death, his own daughter-in-law. And then in that same moment of emotion, he's immediately reminded of a night of prostitution in which he was doing things he knew better than to do. And he has to connect all those dots in a flash and he realizes who she was and who who he was in, oh, I was with her, and it was her, and it was me, and that's my son, and that's my child, and how that must have felt to understand it. This is a moment of truth in his life. We heard that phrase from time to time, right? Moments of truth. We use that term even a little casually. Moment of truth, moment of truth. No, this is a moment of truth, capital M, capital T. Looking at that moment, Judah could have gone two ways. There's a literal Robert Frost fork in the road here for Judah. On the one hand, he could have reacted in anger. He could have reacted in disgust. He could have denied the accusation. It was plausibly deniable. 
Only his close friend knew the real truth about this situation. He could have said, those aren't mine. He could have killed Tamar anyway. He could have made excuses. He could have covered up. He's done it before. He's done exactly this thing before. After all, he was the one to suggest that Joseph be sold into slavery. He came up with that lie. He was the one who had to sit down and eat with his brothers while his brother sat in the pit and cried in request for mercy. And he was able to ignore those pleas for mercy. He is the one who had to carry the bloodstained coat back to his dad and tell his dad that his favorite son was dead and carry that lie after that, watching his father mourn. So don't tell me Judah doesn't have the wherewithal to take that route. He's done it before. But that episode, that earlier episode with Joseph, that was so much to bear for Judah that I argue it drove him out of his family's home, away from his dad, into the arms of a Canaanite woman. And as a result of that sinful choice, now look where he's at. So does he lie again? Does he take that choice in this moment? Does he let the injustice stand? Does he run again? Or does he take option two? Option two is, does he repent? In verse 26, Judah takes the second option. He says, Tamar was more righteous than he was. Another way to really say that, to get the full sense of it in Hebrew, he's declaring that he bears greater guilt than she does for this situation. She's not guiltless, but he's deserving of more blame. Because Judah is the one, he says, who denied Tamar from marrying Shelah, isn't that an interesting connection to draw in the moment? He doesn't say it's your fault and it's also my fault because after all, I was the one who went for the prostitute. He's not just confessing of his sin of laying with Tamar. He's confessing about what led to that whole moment. He's actually jumped over that, gone directly to the heart of the issue, and he's come to the conclusion that he was acting in sin when he denied her the option to marry his son. Good for Judah. Judah's turning point reflects a really common theme in the story of Genesis, something we've looked at from time to time. Remember Abraham? He started as Abram. And you remember Israel? He started as Jacob. Israel started as Jacob. Abraham started as Abram. And now you see Judah here becoming a new man also. His name isn't changing, but it's effectively the same thing. He has been shown his sin, a sin that God brings back upon Judah for the good of the family. And in the face of his sin, he repents. How did he deceive his father? He took a coat, a garment, and used it to convince his father of a lie. How was he drawn into this sin? Through the garment of what Tamar wore. Remember we see this pattern over and over again? God visiting the sin of the person upon himself in some unique way so as to bring back to mind that individual. Oh yeah, I did that same thing myself one day. And it's always done for the the good work that God wants to accomplish in a man's heart, and in this case, in Judah's heart. He's bringing Judah's heart into conformance with his own will, with his own heart. Judah confesses, Judah repents, and Judah restores. There is no lesson more important to the successful walk of a Christian than to recognize that when God brings us opportunities to see our own sin face to face, he is giving us the chance to confess, repent, and restore. There is no single lesson I can teach any Christian more important than that one if your desire, if your goal is to mature and to become more Christ-like. Look for these moments when they happen. And friends, they happen all the time. We get these forks in the road all the time, don't we? 
where you come to that moment where something is brought back to your mind, some some example from your past, some decision, some mistake, and you have that choice. You can say, no, that wasn't me. No, I didn't do that. Or you can come face to face and say, yeah, I did that. And in the confession and in the repentance and in the restoration of whatever is required, you grow. You have to drop your guard to do that. You have to let go of pride. You have to understand that God's done this. It's not chance. It is purposeful. But without confession, we never face the reality of who we really are by nature. We never get to see ourselves honestly. We never actually acknowledge the destructive nature of our sin. We just pass over it. We pretend it doesn't exist. It's like having cancer, but pretending that it's not something to worry about. And without repentance, you don't break the grip that sin has on your future. You can regret a failure in the moment, but without repentance, you're going to repeat that moment. That's the difference between confession and repentance. I can tell you, yeah, I screwed up. Sorry, my fault. But if I don't repent of it, you're going to hear that conversation again in some future day on that same topic. And then lastly, without restoration, you never feel the sting of your sin. What does restoration mean? Restoration means to the extent possible, under the circumstances, make up for it. I always love when I see politicians stand up and say, I will be held accountable. This, this stays with me. The buck stops here. I will, I will be accountable. What do you mean accountable? Are you going to quit? Are you going to find yourself? What is the consequence of taking accountability? Without consequence, it's a meaningless statement. Without restoration and without feeling the sting of that experience, then we're never going to fully reconcile with it. We're never going to fully step out of it. Judah restored Tamar, in this case, to his home. So he takes off the death penalty. He denies himself her. He does not go back into her again. And that denies her also the opportunity for future relations with a husband. He couldn't marry her because if he had done that, it would have been adultery. She was already betrothed. But he couldn't give her to his son either at this point because that would create an incestuous relationship between him and his son. I mean, his son raising his child through his son's wife. I mean, that's that's primetime soap opera stuff. That's not good for the family of God. So the only way to stop the process at this point or to make best of a worse situation is to say no one's marrying anybody anymore. We're all just going to stay in our own beds from here on out. Well, Judah pays a price for his sin in that respect, doesn't he? That's the sting. The sting for him is he lost the opportunity to have a wife. And likewise, Tamar and Shelah is also held out of the family. God getting the good he needs out of this to prevent yet another Canaanite man to be in the line of the seed. And that's how God created good things out of this circumstance. He saves Tamar from an unjust death and he permits Judah's line to continue through her children, as it turns out, that will now be born through her. And he prevents the Canaanites from being in the line of the seed. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 27. Now it came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. And then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. One of the better known and perhaps more curious uh, moments in the story of Israel. Tamar's pregnancy turns out to be one of twins. 
making her and Rebecca the only two women in all scripture who we hear having twins. Since Judah is in the line to bring the seed promise, remember, it's even more unsurprising that she's having two sons simultaneously, isn't it? When we think about the story that we've been studying all along, that's been God's method through every step of the patriarchs. He delights in this. We know only one of them can be the seed promise holder. It's got to go to one and not the other. And yet he keeps introducing two. Well, Abraham had two sons. Isaac had two sons. Jacob had numerous sons through two different wives, two more concubines. Now Judah's going to have twins as well. So the question remains, who gets the seed promise? And as the birth takes place, the midwife is doing her job to mark the one that is first because of the importance that's placed on the birthright. So she's got this red thread ready for whichever one pops out first. And it was so important, so important this children be marked that they were going to do it at the first opportunity. No one had any hope, didn't want any chance that they lose track of whichever one came out. So at the sight of the first body part, in this case an arm, she's Johnny on the spot. Now we know who's first. So while the arm's exposed, she marks him with the thread, and then, quick as a wink, it's back in the womb. Well, it doesn't bother her too much, because she'll still see it when it comes back out, she assumes. But then, the next son comes out first. The one without the thread is the one who's actually born first. The second son, the older, will now serve the younger, which has been the pattern from the beginning. Once again, the Lord making a point. What's the point? What's the point always been every time God has set this up? Reminding his people that he alone decides who holds the seed promise. Was there anything inherently better about Perez over his brother? No. There's never been anything inherently better about any of the men that have been chosen. The point is who chose them, not who they were. And at the moment this midwife makes a decision, God says, great, now that men have made a decision, I can step in and make the different ones so that I can be distinguished from the rule of men. And in fact, Perez will be in the line of the Messiah. But interestingly, exactly ten generations later, this family line will produce its first king for Israel, that being David. The first king from this family line, from Judah's line, will be David, and that comes exactly ten generations after this moment. But this is not the first king of Israel, as you probably know. The very first king in Israel is actually from a different tribe, from the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Saul. But if Judah's line is supposed to be the line of the kings, not just of the king, but of the kings all along, why was the very first king of Israel taken from the tribe of Benjamin, of all places? And the answer comes out of God's law, because God's law says that when there is an illegitimate birth in the line of any of the family of God, the family of Israel, the descendants of that line will be ineligible to be part of the assembly of Israel for 10 generations. Deuteronomy 23, 2, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Perez is an illegitimate son, by all accounts. And as an illegitimate son, he and his family line now stands under this stigma for ten generations. The first person in their family line who is eligible to be king is in the generation of David. And David becomes the king. You see this recounted in Ruth. 
chapter four, in which you see that David is counted ten generations from the moment of Perez. More importantly, the Lord has restored the tribe of Judah from the curse of the Canaanites, and he has protected the seed promise. None of Judah's three sons could be the father in the line of the Messiah because they were the product of a union between Judah and a Canaanite wife, an unnamed wife, and that product meant they had carried the curse. That meant that Judah had now brought the curse into his family line. That couldn't stand. Now, some of you who are observant in the text would probably be asking yourself a question right now. And that question would be, well, wait a minute. How does Judah's union with Tamar avoid that same problem? After all, isn't Tamar Canaanite? Well, remember, we've never been told anything about Tamar's background. She's never been called a Canaanite. We're never told where she came from. All we have is her name, Tamar. The name Tamar, it means palm tree. But that name only has meaning in one language. In the language of Hebrew, her name is a Hebrew word. Therefore, Tamar is a Hebrew. She is probably the descendant of Abraham from his third wife, Keturah. So once again, you see the Lord at work to achieve his purposes in the lives of his people, working through even the smallest details of life, planning things beyond our imagination, bending wills, turning hearts, guiding steps, bringing things about, so that when the time came for Tamar and Judah to have an illicit relationship on the side of the road one night, two people who God intended would produce a man in the line of the seed. Further proof, God turns all things to good. Those things that are sinful as well as those things that are holy, so that he may perform the things he wishes and bring about the purposes he's called for. Folks, Judah's life was a train wreck, almost from the beginning. And it was one that threatened to end the seed promise and bring down with it all humanity's opportunity for salvation. But God brought Judah conviction. He brought him repentance. He brought him a son through a Hebrew woman so that the promise could be carried forward. And we understand with all of this why God had to bring Israel into Egypt, ultimately into bondage. Because while he is capable of rescuing Judah and his brothers from their own sin, the growth and the health of the nation depends on a better long-term solution than God coming to the rescue like this time and time again. The better solution is, I'll send the whole lot of you down to Egypt for 200 and something years where you're segregated and enslaved. Now you can't marry anyone but yourselves. There's not even a Canaanite within reach. And when the time comes to send you back into Canaan, you'll be a people of two million, capable of of doing battle, of occupying the land, of remaining sanctified in my name, and with a law to guide your behavior. That's God at work. Next week we return to the story of Joseph in Egypt. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you are bigger than our sin. That your work is more powerful than those things we do to undo it. That your wisdom extends beyond even a lifetime. Even the lifetime of ten generations. And while we know these things and we accept and we glory in these things, Father, they cannot make excuse for our sin. And we do not either, Father. I pray that you would... Continue to confront with each of us with those things of our past and our present that ought not be. And I ask, Father, you would give us the courage and the humility to take the step 
to confess and repent and to restore as we can so that we may seek to be more like you. Thank you, Father, for the reminder and for the opportunities you give us each day to live according to your word. And may our witness be one, Father, that draws others to know you and to join with us as you may allow. Give us a week in which we can serve you and bring us back next week to continue. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.